Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Steve Cole, who is an associate editor of the Washington Post, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his investigative reporting on the SEC, and the author of Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10, 2001. His book has just won the Lionel Gelber Award as the best book on U.S. foreign policy in the year 2004. Steve, welcome to Berkeley. Hey, thanks, Harry. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. and its environs, um, suburban Maryland. Looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Uh, my uh, father was a lawyer and my mother was a minister, Protestant minister, so I had, I think, sort of two sides of the brain working in the household. Uh, <laughs> my father was very articulate and analytical and my mother uh, was very interested in social issues and uh, political issues and so the conversation between the two of them I think brought me towards words and, uh, and the way the world works. Uh, I think that was what I walked away from with. Uh, where were you educated? Uh... Well, as in, uh, I went to high school in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., I think a typical uh, public school education. Uh, and then I went off to a college in Los Angeles at uh, Occidental College, a s small liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what did you major in there? Uh, I ended up sort of majoring both in English and in history, uh, unable to choose between literature and and history. Mm -hmm. And what, uh, what drew you into journalism? I think from, uh, you know, I worked on my school paper from an early age, even in high school, and I think when I went off to college I knew I wanted to write for a living somehow. I wasn't quite sure what that would mean, and I certainly didn't have newspapers particularly in mind, but I thought, you know, maybe uh, novels, maybe screenplays, something. And uh, so I always had tried to live and work close to the language in one way or another and by the time I finished college I realized that as a practical matter the only way some, anyone was likely to give me a salary to write was either to write <laughs> advertising copy or to, or to write journalism so I, uh, I, I set out to try to, to break into that. And, and what, was your, what, what was your first entry point into uh, the, the work of journalism and investigative reporting? Well, I had done sort of semi-serious work in college in, in a collegiate context, and so that was the main um, sort of portfolio I brought into the world when I finished college, but I didn't really have a job or any contacts or any prospect of a, of a uh, sensible entry. So I, when I got out of college in Los Angeles, I just looked in the yellow pages under magazines and newspapers and walked around to different <laughs> offices and dropped my resume off, mm -hmm. and I ended up working for a, a group that was uh, publishing magazines for aspiring uh, rock musicians. It was called Music Connection Magazine and uh, they uh, had a couple of different products and I was brought in initially to type classifieds and write news stories about the music industry and uh, so I worked there for about a year and I did uh, sort of an investigation about how independent promoters got hit songs on the radio, the old payola mm -hmm. subject kind of updated mm -hmm. and uh, that came to the attention of this investigative reporting group at uh, public television called Community Information Project, and they brought me in as a writer, and that was really the serious beginning of my 
of my journalism career. And, and uh, how, when did you land at the Washington Post? Uh, had, had you done a story that drew their attention? I, uh, well, I, I graduated from college in 1980. By 1982, 1983, I was working through the auspices of this investigative reporting group for California Magazine. I became a contributing editor there. I wrote some cover stories for them, doing investigative reporting about business subjects, litigation, uh, San Quentin Prison in California, just a general interest sort of portfolio. And so I had some good teaching early on by editors there and some, and some visibility. I then, because of the work I did for the magazine, had a book contract offered, did the book, moved to Washington, uh, and I was just walking down the street one day, literally ran into one of my old editors from California Magazine. She had since moved to the Washington Post. She said, you should come work for the Post. Hmm. And it turned out to be more or less as easy as that. So <laughs> okay. I entered as a reporter in 1985. Uh-huh. Now, let's talk a little about investigative uh, journalism. How would you characterize uh, that kind of work? Well, I think... Uh, that's a good question. You know, I w- I, what I tell my colleagues at the Post these days is that we ought to be doing, an investigative reporter ought to be doing, first of all, the stories that other people don't do, won't do. Uh, that we, you have to walk away from the crowd first. Second, you have to uh, think about classes of vulnerable people who are not otherwise having their questions and concerns addressed in our society. Who are those people? Who, who who is standing unspoken for, and what concerns can an investigative reporter look into that would be of public interest. This usually involves investigating the exercise of power of some sort, not always, but uh, it may involve uh, typically governmental power, but can also increasingly, I think, in our society involve corporate power. So you have to sort of keep querying your subject matter, I think, from these points of view. Uh, The other thing that investigative reporters, of course, can do, should do, that other journalists don't have the time or the resources or the support to do is to uh, take on the most difficult subjects, the hard targets that require time and persistence in order to really uh, break them down. And, and that uh, can involve interviewing, persistent interviewing, but it may also involve um, taking advantage of our open society's uh, habits of record keeping and really pushing uh, into the into public records and documents and and data to see patterns or to reveal abuses. So so it sounds like you're saying you need as if when we're doing a skill inventory here you need uh, patience you need perseverance you 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 need to be a digger so to speak. You do. I think that there are lots of different kinds of successful investigative reporters I've learned over the years. Um, they tend as a group to be. Uh, kind of iconoclastic, not always the easiest people in the world to manage. They're very passionate about their work when they're good. But many of them also uh, are just patient and persistent and determined to get to the bottom of things, driven to get to the bottom mm-hmm. of things. In terms of skill sets these days, the, the, in journalism, I think one of the most neglected opportunities, even outside of long, persistent investigations, is the use of public records and publicly available data to clarify or hold to account uh, the actions of governments or corporations. We live in a society, and I know this now from having worked in a lot of other countries around the world, that makes an extraordinary amount of mm-hmm. material about the way governmental power is exercised available. But you have to go dig it out. I mean, it's not offered up 
uh, mm -hmm. in the course of, a, of an ordinary day at the newspaper. You've got to go to courthouses, you've got to go to real estate records keeping. Off. And these days, with the amount of material that is digitally available and available through the web or web equivalent sources, you can use computers to clarify the world we live in in ways that were not possible when I was starting out in this field. Mm -hmm. It sounds also like uh, uh, you, you, you need a hypothesis or a theory, or does, the, does that come after you've dug in to the, to the information that's out there? Because one of the problems we're confronting now is there's so much information. So how do you see what is important and, and what you need to emphasize? I think it goes, it's a good question. I think it goes back to sort of these broader principles that you have to wrestle with in this field. One is, um, who's the victim? What, what problem are you addressing? And is this a problem that other people are neglecting that matters? Um, you know, what, what can you report about that nobody else is reporting about that also matters. And so I look, for instance, at vulnerable populations, um, the mentally ill, mentally Ill uh, people who are disenfranchised in one capacity or another, people who are dependent upon government or corporations. That, that, that class of vulnerable populations, however you define it, it may, not be, it may just be people who live exposed to toxic environments or right. yeah. so they're you know or in the developing world refugees stateless populations uh, migrants uh, the disenfranchised you know vulnerable populations can be very broadly defined but that's a place to begin because there's usually sound journalism to be done someplace in their midst if you stand in their shoes and look out at the world that they experience and ask how is this world coming at this vulnerable population? <laughs> what, what are its obligations? And then how is it actually delivering the services or the responsibilities that it's uh, charged to deliver? There are usually some, some useful questions that a journalist can ask from that posture. I think another thing to ask is what exactly are powerful decision makers doing outside of public view? Uh, and you can ask that question about governments at every level. Um, some government is fairly transparent. Much of government is not transparent. And it requires journalism to make it transparent. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it simply would not be. Occasionally, uh, opposition political parties or others can make uh, government transparent when it wouldn't otherwise be. But journalists have an important role to play. And then you have also private uh, power, which is um, often more difficult to penetrate from uh, a journalist's posture because uh, a determined corporation that simply doesn't want to make its work known um, can shut down some of the avenues that investigative reporters normally rely upon, but that just calls for all the more persistence and, and clarity of thought. Um, it sounds like as one uh, gets into this process that uh, interviewing must really be an, an important, that is, uh, finding the right people, talking to them, having them trust you uh, to, to give their account of the story, whatever it is. Yeah, I think it, it, it often is crucial. And it's very interesting. If you sat around a table at the Post with, say, our sort of 10 most accomplished investigative reporters, and you asked them, how important is uh, public records work? How important are documents? How important is interviewing? 
you would hear 10 different answers of the version. There, mm-hmm. each, each reporter has their own sort of experience and their own sort of strength and methodology. Bob Woodward, for instance, is all about interviewing. He, he famously says, uh, don't waste your time with documents. You know, someone who you interview will give you a useful document, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but, uh, but don't, you know, that, don't circle around your subject mm-hmm. or write at the principles. Go to the principles and try to pick their pockets and, and uh, you know, just go up and, and push through the front door. That's his approach. has been very successful for him. Of course, he has a leverage and a pro file that many of his colleagues don't enjoy. It's not so easy to call up uh, cabinet members if you're not Bob Woodward and say, you know, or the president, you're the president and <laughs> yeah. say, I would like an interview, please. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you have some very successful investigative reporters in our shop and elsewhere who have developed a method for working from the ground up that starts with documents, and then the documents lead to interviewing, and the interviewing leads back to public records, and so there's kind of a ping-pong effect. Mm-hmm. But in both methods, interviewing is absolutely crucial, and um, you know, it's, it, it, you have to come at it from lots of different angles simultaneously. There's no sort of single um, needle to thread. Mm-hmm. Now, you most recently were managing editor of the Washington Post. What, what is, what is the, 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 the most difficult aspect of that job? Because you're essentially orchestrating not only investigative reporters, but also the whole uh, uh, symphony orchestra, so to speak. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is using an office like that to create great journalism, which is the goal, after mm-hmm. all. And you can do that in, by protecting and creating space for great journalists, making sure that the people who are driven to do work that matters have the, the space and the resources and the support that they need to get to the end of uh, their work and that they're thinking ambitiously and that they're not being sort of cut off early and so on. So that, that I think I always thought was the most important thing that I could do with that office because it ultimately uh, people will answer to your office if you insist, well, no, let's keep going, let's keep pushing. I think the hardest thing, though, in a room the size of the Washington Post with 800 journalists in it is having enough contact with all of the different sort of potential sources of potential in the newsroom, um, all of the reporters, all of their ideas, all of their sort of sense of what's possible so that you can help them get to the work that matters um, and push past the routine and the sort of convenient and the rest of it. And that in a big organization with so many people and a big old fat newspaper to put out every day, it's hard to keep the conversation about the work that matters alive in people's daily experience. It, it's a you know it's a it's a grinding and demanding profession that can lead a lot of people just to say, well let's Good enough is good enough. <laughs> let's let's move on now. Before we talk about your book, uh, one one other question along this line: the the press is has been subjected uh, on, on many campuses to a lot of criticism. It's its inability, uh, especially in the in the foreign policy area, to to identify the right problems, to not be hold, beholden to the administration, and so on. I, I wonder if you would uh, comment on that as somebody who who uh, was managing, you know, one of our, if not the greatest paper that we have. Well, I think one of the most important things that newspapers can contribute to um, public, to the accountability of our government and to public sort of discourse is independent foreign correspondence, especially in the world we live in now. We maintain about 25 or 30 professional foreign correspondents around the world, uh, and these people work 
really on their own independently, sometimes in difficult circumstances, and they bring inconvenient facts to the table, literally to the breakfast table in Washington through the Post and at other papers with similar audiences and resources, the same process occurs. And their work uh, is, I think, crucial to this moment in American foreign policy and American national life. You know, holding government decision-making to account in Washington in the theater in which those decisions are being made is also crucially important. And their newspapers have to be determined to take the time and to, and to push in directions that the crowd isn't going in. And it's, it's very difficult both uh, mechanically to dig out information from governments that are determined to keep it secret, but also culturally to be persistent in asking unpopular questions. And you know, we have reporters who broke the Abu Ghraib, aspects of the Abu Ghraib story, who, uh, who persisted with reporting about, uh, say, you know, uh, torture and abuse in Guantanamo and elsewhere, or the s- secret rendition programs of the Central Intelligence Agency. You know, every day they come to work, and in their inbox, are 350 hostile emails denouncing them uh, mm. individually and in the most personal in, in terms. And, you know, it takes a certain personality mm-hmm. and it takes a certain kind of support mechanism to kind of come to work every day and just keep pushing because you think that it's the right thing to be doing to expose mm-hmm. th- this information for public sort of consumption and debate. And, um, you know, I just would address a question you didn't ask, but which may be uh, certainly part of the criticism the press received, which is, about the run-up to the Iraq War, um, where you know, the press is generally criticized for failing to discover that Iraq didn't possess weapons of mass destruction or that the administration was exaggerating the claims that they were making about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. And I, I honestly think that that criticism is misplaced because I really, first of all, we did publish a lot of information about the doubts uh, that the UN inspectors and others had started to surface Uh, about the Iraqi WMD programs. But I think more significantly, the truth is, and I think any honest review of the record would confirm that everybody believed that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Hans Blix believed that Mm -hmm. Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. The French believed that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. He had had them. He'd used them. The debate wasn't about whether he possessed them. The debate was about whether an invasion was the right way to address the threat Mm -hmm. that his possession posed. And so to criticize newspapers standing outside of the resources business for failing to expose the fraud, it just seems to me absurd. That's not to absolve ourselves uh, of, our, of our performance before the war. I think we did fail. Uh, I think we failed, though, in a different area. Um, to me, the, the work we could have done successfully uh, before the war that might have helped to shape or certainly at least would have created a better record uh, around the debate to invade was about a subject that was easier for us to, to understand, report on, and describe, which was the history and character of Iraqi nationalism and, and the mm-hmm. assumptions that seemed to accompany the, the plan for the invasion, that, that Iraq was like Romania, that once the police state was destroyed, that Iraqis would peacefully... Uh, after a couple of weeks of uh, perhaps a little bit of rioting here and there. Basically, that they would accept this occupation. If you look at the foreign correspondence that was was filed out of Iraq in the pages of the Post and in many other places before the invasion, there were lots of statements, 
along the lines of, you know, we will resist this invasion and we will persist in our resistance after the occupation is established. But everybody discounted that on the grounds that, well, it was just, you know, these are police mm-hmm. state stooges, this is just propaganda and so forth. In fact, they'll melt away. But, but what was available to work on more than we did mm-hmm. was to look into the history and the character of uh, Iraqi nationalism and and the Iraqi nation that was going to be left after the Ba'athist uh, police state was destroyed, and to really challenge some of the assumptions that uh, that drove post-war planning. Which which actually brings us to your book. Not that it's about Iraq, but that but but actually uh, does a magnificent job of bringing together uh, history and and politics and and culture. Uh, in society of, of the part of the world where Osama bin Laden uh, rose. The book is called Ghost Wars. And uh, uh, let's talk a little about it. And, and one of the, to follow on what you just said, I think what you're, one of the dilemmas of journalism is that since it's, it's covering a beat, it's covering a story, it, it actually doesn't have the time, I guess, sometimes to grapple with the historical forces at work. Is, is it, you, you've clearly done that in your book, but a, for a, an operating newspaper, that must be harder to do, I guess. Well, it's true. I mean, I think foreign correspondents are not historians, but they, if they're working effectively in any theater, they can contribute uh, a sort of first and contemporaneous draft of the themes that historians will eventually be interested in. The most important things that foreign correspondents can do um, is to is to be independent, honest witnesses uh, to the structure of political events around them, and and to take advantage of their status as an outsider to circle the field mm-hmm. uh, with a with an open mind and with real intellectual honesty and with the determination to to ask and ask again and not accept the first draft of responses, and to try to pull that together, make it available. Uh, to readers, scholars, government analysts, decision makers, and the public in the United States so that they can start to chew over it. The, the, that's the thing that journalism can do that nobody else can do. Deliver independent, honest, transparent facts to an open society so that an open society can debate their significance. Now, in this case, you, you also have the, if you're such a journalist that you like doing that kind of work, you can also go back after the fact and try to to answer the questions that it was impossible to answer while you were in mm-hmm. the field. Because certainly while you're working in the field, you're never going to be able to uh, penetrate the, some of these subjects the way you can if you, have, if you have the opportunity to go back at them after they've faded into history. And, and for instance, the principles don't feel so much as at stake in telling the mm-hmm. truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so they want to build, start building the case for history. They want to start way. building a case for history. And they also, they also don't feel as if exposure of uncomfortable facts will have immediate consequences to them the way they often feel when you're out reporting actively on a 24-hour news cycle. So, so tell us the history of, of this book itself. When, when did you uh, decide uh, to write it? What prepared you to write it? And I should tell our audience that, that this is a, uh, 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 a, an account of all the actors, forces, and and bureaucracies, whatever, uh, that together 
coalesce over time to, to really lead and help us understand uh, the events of, of 9-11. So, so what got you on this track, and, and when did you decide to write it? Well, when I, um, the, without delivering a long answer, I think I have to say that it started when I became a foreign correspondent, and I was assigned to India and South Asia, and Afghanistan was one of my subjects as was Pakistan. And for a little more than three years, I traveled regularly to Pakistan and Afghanistan. What years now? 1989 to 1992 to report for the Post. And while I was out there as a correspondent, one of the big stories on my watch was the CIA's program to aid anti-Soviet, later anti-communist rebels in Afghanistan, a program that was notionally secret, but pretty well known, at least in its outline. Uh, And which was, during the time that I was reporting on it, becoming increasingly controversial uh, because it seemed to be promoting radical Islamic groups at the expense of more moderate Afghan groups. The Soviets had gone home. The United States was trying to decide whether it had interests sufficient to justify staying around and trying to rebuild Afghanistan. And as a newspaper reporter, I was around all of these debates and started to chronicle them in the pages of the Post. This really galvanized my interest. I became very involved in Afghanistan. I traveled there quite a lot. It's a place apart, a place like no other in the world, and it just, perhaps because it was one of my earliest experiences abroad, it just uh, uh, got inside me, and and I became very involved in its struggles and wanted to stay with it as a subject. And so as I uh, finished my reporting tour out there, I began to try to report more deeply on some of the controversies that I had chronicled as a newspaper reporter. How did the CIA work? What were the assumptions of American policy? What was the partnership with the Pakistani intelligence service like? Why were radical Islamic elements of the resistance seemingly gathering strength at the expense of more moderate elements? And so I did some series of articles for the paper then, gathered a lot of files and interviews, even more than the Post could digest in a long Mm -hmm. investigative series. And fortunately, I... I was interested enough in this that I boxed them up and set them aside and then stayed in touch with the subject matter in ensuing years. I rotated to London. I did transnational reporting about terrorism, al-Qaeda, bin Laden in the early 90s. And so I kept accumulating material. I occasionally thought, well, maybe I should pull this together in some way as a book. And I wrote about it in part in in a book that I did coming out of South Asia, just a sort of a political travelogue about South Asia. I wrote a little bit about this, but I, I still felt like maybe there's something more to do. And then September 11th happened, and uh, you know it just immediately galvanized uh, my relationship with this material and this history, and uh, led me to think I should try to pull something together. Uh, I, I do want to tell our audience that it's hard to do justice to this book because uh, I read it a year ago, and uh, 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 I did my underlinings and so on, and I was rereading it in preparation for this interview, and I found that I couldn't stay with my underlinings, that once you become absorbed, because it's, it is beautifully written, it, it's, a, it's a powerful narrative with a cast of characters uh, that, that are really uh, uh, well drawn and so on. So I'm, I'm going to try to hit some highlights and draw that out of you, uh, w- what I see as some of the major themes. And, and one theme that I think is very important is the importance 
importance of history here. So that in a way, this story that that ends up in uh, with the bombing of the uh, the twin towers really. The, its genesis goes back to the last phase of the Cold War, the, the forces that were uh, set in motion, even beginning with the Carter administration and his national security advisor, Brzezinski. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, that was the, uh, the traumatic end to a, to a traumatic year of uh, upheaval in the Islamic world. And it, it galvanized not only... Um, Muslims from North Africa to Southeast Asia in a common cause, but it also galvanized the United States, which recognized in Afghanistan a theater where they could challenge uh, the Soviet Union um, unlike anything they'd been able to do elsewhere. And Brzezinski was, in the Carter administration, the chief visionary of how this policy might be carried out. Even before the Soviets invaded, as he watched their proxy client Communist Party in Afghanistan get into trouble during the first months of 1979, he began to think about whether or not the United States, by aiding the resistance to the Soviet-sponsored Communist Party, might uh, begin to roll back Soviet influence in Central Asia and also just embarrass the Soviets in their effort to expand their influence globally. And after the invasion, uh, Brzezinski wrote a memo to President Carter uh, in the last days of 1979, that's now on the public record, it's really a fascinating document. And he essentially, it's a quite a discursive note, uh, reflective, and he says, uh, you know, in effect, Mr. President, uh, we have an opportunity here uh, to create a Soviet Vietnam. Uh, we shouldn't be too optimistic that we'll succeed because they may well crush the resistance that they face. But we should try. This is uh, a strategic mistake that the Soviet Union has made. They don't make a lot of these mistakes, and we better step up and participate. And so he outlined a policy of covert action and overt diplomacy to challenge the Soviet occupation in that note that really became the basis of American covert policy in Afghanistan for 10 years through uh, not only the Reagan administration, but even the first Bush administration. And uh, he, he, in that note, set a frame that really the United States uh, worked within for, for more than a decade. Another theme that emerges in your book is the continuity of policy, even with the change of administrations. Uh, and, and as you've just suggested, this, is, is, uh, 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 this continuity occurs when Reagan comes in, when Casey is named director of the CIA, and so on. I get the sense that in some ways, when, when you look at this whole history, that it's as if we sometimes over-engage or engage unwisely, specific example being aiding the, the Mujahideen, training them in terrorist tactics, among others, because the goal was to go after the Soviet Union. But then on the other hand, when, when the Soviets pull out, uh, when they pull out, we pull out. So there, there is a kind of an ambivalence of uh, a dilemma that we're not being able to choose wisely the terms upon which we engage, and then we unwisely pull out prematurely. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, one of the ways that that unfolded was that we, from the beginning of our engagement with Afghan with Afghanistan, never really grappled with Afghanistan as a place, Afghanistan as a people, Afghanistan as a polity. We just 
were there to challenge the Soviet Union. So we poured in guns and money, but we allowed the Pakistanis to shape the political agenda on the frontier, to choose who would be the leaders of the resistance, what methods of assassination, sabotage, and guerrilla war would be acceptable. And we essentially supported their agenda and uh, reinforced it without ever understanding uh, or attempting to shape um, Afghan leadership in the resistance that might be uh, more consonant with Afghan national traditions, more friendly to the United States, and, and just sort of more sensible all around. And you know, it's, it's, we, we, we're not, I don't want to sort of become too abstract about it, but we, we've never been an imperial power, and we, we, we don't seem to have a kind of a national mechanism for engaging in complex societies far away from our own. We have this powerful instinct to pull back, to withdraw behind our oceans, mm -hmm. to sort of let the world sort itself out, uh, unless it directly a threat, threatens our, our interests or our shores. And so you know, in, in the course when this decision to withdraw was being made, you had this very interesting debate inside the embassies in Islamabad between the two intelligence services of the United States and Great Britain and between the diplomatic services of the two countries. Now, the Brits had been the imperial power in Pakistan and Afghanistan. They had had two disastrous wars on Afghan soil, but they sort of knew the, the territory, mm -hmm. and they had a very confident approach to how you could start to shape and support Afghan political leaders who would be friendlier to the West, who would isolate the bin Ladens and the other Islamic extremists who were beginning to rise as the Soviets pulled out. And the Americans would go to these meetings with their British counterparts and listen to them talk about, well, you need to build up the Karzai clan, you need to build up this mm -hmm. tribe and that tribe. And there was this kind of American instinct to say, oh, that's the, you British neo-imperialists, you, know, mm -hmm. you failed out here once before. We don't do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, we were here to challenge the Soviet Union. We're out of here. And so there was this, this almost national instinct uh, to not get involved in the complexity of, of a place like Afghanistan. And, and, I, and this, this way of not being imperial, not wanting to run an empire, uh, uh, led us to continue to defer to the uh, Pakistanis, the, 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 the army there, the ISI, the, the security agency, uh, with, with really bad consequences because over time their goals were changing. Uh, the goals of the various uh, Islamic uh, factions were changing, and uh, we didn't perceive that until it was too late, and kept exacerbating the the uh, uh, the policy by not uh, attempting to moderate the 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 mess that we had helped create. You know, the Pakistani army just was fighting a different war than we were uh, during the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. They were allies of ours, but they had an independent agenda. They recognized, naturally enough, that first of all, they were more directly threatened by the Soviet invasion than the United States was, because if the resistance failed, the Soviets might well keep on coming. Secondly, they were very early on able to visualize a post-Soviet region. And they, as they began to push for Soviet withdrawal and began to recognize that it might occur, they began immediately to think, well, what's gonna, what kind of neighborhood is this going to be after the Soviets pull out of Afghanistan? And in answering that question, their main concern was actually India, mm -hmm. uh, their, their existential rival uh, with whom they had fought and lost three wars, uh, the most recent one in 1971. And they feared that the vacuum that Afghanistan might become would be a 
staging ground for Indian mischief and Indian hostility towards Pakistan. So they began to promote radical Islamists uh, for the purpose of controlling Afghans' politics in a post-war environment. It was not so much that they believed themselves in the ideology of bin Laden or his Afghan allies, but they saw this kind of Islamic politics as an effective way to contain Indian influence and to control an unruly neighbor to their west. Now, the United States watched this happening, watched the Pakistanis systematically promoting radical Islamist leaders who were hostile to the United States, who often denounced the United States in public speeches. Uh, and there was uneasiness about this. And as the Soviets left, there was a debate, not very publicly available, but it occurred nonetheless, about whether we ought to try to do something about this. But the prevailing view in the United States government, and particularly the CIA, was, look, this isn't our neighborhood. If the Pakistanis want to promote clients who are hostile to the United States because that's the way that they're going to control post-Soviet Afghanistan, it might not be our first choice, but we don't have interests here sufficient to justify getting involved. Let's just go home. And uh, that argument ultimately prevailed uh, by 1992, and so we shut down all of our involvement in Afghanistan and left it to the Pakistanis. And, and that, that uh, failure in the Pakistani policy uh, led to uh, a, a development of a, of, a full, of a strategy on the part of the Pakistanis to develop, use Afghanistan for strategic depth. And uh, uh, Kashmir then became uh, mixed up with all of this. Talk a little about that, because they, uh, the, 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 Pakis, the Pakistanis saw uh, Kashmir as a, a vulnerability that they could exploit against India uh, as they developed the strategic depth in Afghanistan by uh, acquiescing in a, a fundamentalist regime there. Everybody who participated in the, in the war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan during the 1980s felt a sense of triumphalism when the Soviets withdrew. I mean, how extraordinary. Here's the, you know, the, one of the world's great superpowers has, has been defeated uh, by Afghans and by the Pakistan Army and Intelligence Service, the Americans, everybody was, was sense, had a sense of what they had accomplished. Now, the way the Pakistan Army interpreted the lesson of the Soviet experience in Afghanistan was that this kind of guerrilla jihadist movement was a very powerful, strategic, low-cost, strategic instrument against larger adversaries. And so they turned to their east and they saw India uh, again, for, for the Pakistan army, it's really all about India. Uh, they've had their country dismembered. They feel like they're in a perpetual state of war with India. And they, they began to think, can't we do to India what we did to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan? And Kashmir became the theater for that ambition. There was a spontaneous rebellion in Kashmir that wasn't created by the Pakistan army, but once it got underway, the Pakistan Intelligence Service began to direct the strategies and the resources and, in many cases, the people that it had supported in Afghanistan across uh, its eastern frontiers to tie down the Indian Army in Kashmir. And they discovered that this was a very effective strategic approach because within uh, six or seven years, they had 600,000 Indian troops bogged down in Kashmir. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there were very few Pakistan. There were no Pakistani army officers or conscripts required. There were just a few thousand highly motivated jihadist volunteers who were prepared to go do this work in Kashmir. And they began to use Bin Laden in Afghanistan and the infrastructure of training camps that he had built up 
to train and develop these volunteers far from any place that India could harass or, or uh, constrain them. So al-Qaeda became an instrument of Pakistani intelligence, uh, intelligence's regional policies, particularly in Kashmir. And their contacts with bin Laden, uh, which did occur right up to 9-11, were not about a joint campaign against the United States. The Pakistan army didn't want to see 9-11 happen. It wasn't trying to involve uh, itself in that. Though there were perhaps one or two generals who kind of went off the reservation. But mainly what Pakistan, the Pakistan army wanted to do was to use bin Laden to prosecute its campaign against India and Kashmir. In, in this story uh, that you're telling, it, one is struck how in this part of the world that you were covering, this in, interface between uh, state power, uh, the global power of the United States, the, the, the state power of regional actors, uh, uh, it gets intertwined with new transnational groups that are emerging and that create a volatility with global implications that in the beginning nobody really understands what has been put in place. Well, in the 90s, as, as terrorist attacks that had connections to or roots in Afghanistan and the vacuum that Afghanistan had become, as those terrorist attacks occurred, for many years in the United States and the FBI and the counterterrorism community, there was this powerful instinct to look for the government that was behind this. There always seemed, because in the 80s, it had always been governments behind the attacks. Uh, you know, Lockerbie, the bombing of the discotheque in East Berlin, traceable to Libya's government, and Iran's sponsorship of Hezbollah was integral to the work that they had, the terrorist work that they had done in the 80s in Lebanon. So there was this assumption that terrorism was an instrument of, a hidden instrument, a clandestine instrument of government policy. But it took a long while for a consensus to develop in the West that al-Qaeda was something else, uh, that it had contacts with states, and it certainly drew support from the Pakistan army in particular, but it was essentially a stateless, multinational, transnational movement that was drawing recruits and ambitions from lots of subnational groups around the world, and was building a kind of a confederation of stateless organizations. Now, what's interesting is that, yes, states interacted with al-Qaeda, but you also had these kind of, these in-between institutions. And I think the Pakistani Intelligence Service, ISI, is the paradigm. It's sort of neither a state actor nor is it a stateless actor. It, it became like the Serbian uh, militias, you know, in, uh, in Bosnia and Croatia. Mm -hmm. These kind of blended security services, criminal organizations, ideological extreme nationalist mm -hmm. organizations, really not manageable if you are running the government of Pakistan. It, it, one of the problems by you, the time you get to the last year or two before 9-11 as this attack is building and building is that even if you or I were the, the commanding general of the Pakistan army, if we issued an order to the ISI bureau out in Afghanistan who was working with bin Laden to cease and desist tomorrow, you would have very little confidence mm -hmm. that the person would actually do what you asked, <laughs> unless you physically went in there with a helicopter, grabbed him by the lapels and took him out, because ISI had developed into a power, a state within the state. It was a power within its own right. It was self-funding. It was making money from criminal endeavors, from uh, from fees, from perhaps from heroin manufacturing, according to some evidence, and certainly from transportation and other uh, sources of corruption. And it was populated out in the field by people who had become very ideologically involved in the movement, and it was really a power unto itself. 
Uh, and and one, one gets the sense, uh, uh, I, I should say that the, what you're describing had global implications, very importantly, as, as, as we came to see later. One, there is a sense here that none of the uh, actors, especially the United States, understand, understood religion and the forces of religion and the, the fire, uh, the powder keg that we were, try- we were lighting a match to. Uh, talk a little about that, because it seems that, that we didn't get it. Casey didn't get it. He thought that there could be a, a, a global alliance between Christians and uh, Christian soldiers, I guess, and, uh, well, that's an overstatement, between the forces of Christianity and the forces of Islam. Well, I think he really did believe. I mean, in the, we have to take ourselves back to the, to the Cold War period, where um, the you know, overarching, dominant challenge was containment and, and uh, ultimately the pursuit of the defeat of the Soviet Union and its ideology. And as the United States looked for allies, particularly in the developing world, in that effort, one of its most powerful sources of uh, alliance was the perception, especially in the Islamic world, that the Soviet Union was atheistic, hostile to organized religion, and in fact it was. It's repressed churches, repressed mosques in its own, on its own soil, and, and promoted ideologies that were overtly hostile to religious belief and, and cultural religious practices. So the United States both was, in, the, in someone like Casey, led by a believer, but also tactically looking for believers as partners. And Casey did conceive, I think, out of his own personal religious conviction, but also out of his sense as a kind of global tactician, that there was an alliance of believers that could check the potential of Soviet expansionism uh, through political faith. And he cultivated that alliance uh, explicitly, and particularly with the Saudis, uh, you know, a society where, as a practicing and devout Catholic, he was not really welcomed by official Saudi (laughs) ideology. Nonetheless, he found a way to say to the Saudi leadership, look, we're both believers and we share uh, a common interest against this unbelieving hegemonic power, so let's work together. And that his willingness, and he wasn't alone in this, Uh, you know, the Israelis initially cultivated Hamas as an alternative to the more potent secular leftist Palestinian Liberation Organization. There was a, there was, it was just fashion, it was a fashionable tactic toward the end of the Cold War to cultivate religiously motivated groups, especially after the Iranian Revolution in 1979, as a way to check what was seen as the larger and more dangerous power of secular left uh, governments and, and organizations. And, and all of the, 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 these religious phenomena, for example, you mentioned the Saudis, the, 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 uh, uh, their ideas about religion within, within Saudi Arabia began to have global impact because of the links that were established as, because the, the Saudis were the secondary funder of all of our operations against the Soviet. They matched the money that we put in. They did. And, uh, you know, this policy of the Saudis, of course, is rooted in their own uh, historical, political, religious traditions. It's a deeply devout society, has been for three centuries. But the political uses of this faith and the export of this ideology is a more recent phenomenon. And it began in the same vein as in our earlier discussion when King Faisal in the 1970s was looking for a way to check the appeal of Nasserism and Arab nationalism. Mm. And he saw political religion as a way that he could protect 
Saudi Arabia from Nasserism and from Baathism. And so he began to develop institutions like the uh, Muslim World League and the International Islamic Relief Organization that are now sort of seen as terrorist charities. And these have roots back in his struggle with Nasserism in the 60s and the 70s. Once the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, he began to partner with the CIA. He began to, to work in an even more practical way by writing huge checks every year to match the covert allocations of the U.S. Congress to the Afghan resistance. And in addition to these sums, which by the mid-late 1980s totaled uh, $500 million a year each for a total uh, contribution of, of near a billion dollars, by, the, by that time, he was, the Saudi government was also, in addition to that money, running their own unilateral contributions to the Afghan resistance and promoting uh, radical wings, including uh, groups in and around al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. So there was an enormous amount of... Uh, one uh, former CIA station chief in Islamabad, a guy named Milt Bearden, who was there between 86 and 89, I guess, he has publicly estimated that the amount of Saudi money reaching the frontier between Pakistan and Afghanistan, where bin Laden was working, by the late 80s was $25 million a month. Mm -hmm. uh, another important theme in, in your book is this, uh, uh, the consequences, I would say, of external intervention, but, but most importantly, the way these interventions affected the balance of power among the Islamic groups uh, and uh, uh, the, the mixing of Arabs with Afghans and so on as, as part of this effort. And the reason I raise this is because I, I, as I read your book, I see one possible heroic figure in that book, and it's the head of the, the Northern Alliance, uh, Masood, who, who basically in a way loses out because he can't get the support at the right time and the right amount from the external uh, actors who are playing this great game. Talk a little about that. He was the most effective indigenous guerrilla leader during the anti-Soviet years and then uh, during the 1990s as well. He continued to be an effective military commander. He was a charismatic figure. He was a very successful military tactician. But he was able to build, unlike many other radical leaders in the Afghan resistance who were clients of the Pakistan intelligence service, Massoud was able to build a, a broader uh, and more diverse and more deeply rooted political coalition in the north. And he was able to acquire power by sharing it, and he worked to build up sustainable political organizations on the ground in Afghanistan. That made him different from most of the other warlords and fighters. But his, his struggle was, as the Soviets prepared to leave, he found himself engaged in a war within the war against the Pakistani intelligence service and its principal client, Kulbuddin Hekmadiyar, who was a close ally of Osama bin Laden. And Massoud struggled to convince the Americans, uh, anyone who would listen to him, that this conflict that was unfolding between his organization and Hekmadiyar and the Pakistani intelligence service was not just an internecine dispute or a grab for power or, or, or such, that it was a battle for the character of post-war Afghanistan, post-Soviet Afghanistan, and that the United States ought to recognize that, yes, Massoud didn't want to be dictator of all the land. He wanted partners around the country, but he could not coexist with the clients, the radical clients that Pakistani intelligence was supporting. And he was right. Pakistani intelligence was 
hostile to him and was seeking his destruction. Mm. And so they supported Hekmadiar in this sort of war within the war uh, in the early 90s. And as you say, the United States, as much out of passivity as out of deliberation, endorsed this program of the Pakistani Intelligence Service and by both direct and indirect action essentially endorsed the policy of promoting Hekmatyar as the instrument of, and the vehicle for post-Soviet uh, Afghanistan. And that was never a decision that any cabinet of the United States would have sat around and made deliberately, but it was a consequence of this hands-off approach and this alliance with the Pakistan army that had built up during the 80s. As you look back at this history, uh, and, and, and I heartily recommend that everybody watching this program actually read the book because you can't put it down, is, is there one or two turning points, do you think, that would have made a difference? You, 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 you orchestrate an analysis that shows us the personality, shows us the intelligence agency, shows us the, the domestic politics of these places with their global implications. Are, th are there any one or two key turning points where things might not have gone where they went? I, do, I think there are probably, I'd identified two. One was the decision to uh, disengage from Afghanistan after the Soviets left and the failure of the United States to take the risks and make the uncertain investments that would have been required to attempt to build a moderate, sustainable, centrist Afghan politics in the post-Soviet rubble that uh, would have been more consonant with American interests in the regions, but also would have completed the sort of moral participation of the United States with the Afghan resistance uh, to try to sort of help them finish their project. In effect, what was being discussed at that time was an alliance of the northern uh, groups led by Massoud, moderate Pashtun royalists like the Karzai family, and exiled intellectuals. It was the same group that was put together in Bonn in November of 2001 when the world now desperately needed a centrist Afghan mm -hmm. government and had to figure out how to cobble one together. They put together the same group that was being discussed in 92 and 93. The United States essentially decided, we don't want to get involved in that project. We're not sure it's going to work. It might not have worked, to be fair, but we didn't really attempt it. And we weren't prepared to make the investments or to take the political and diplomatic risks that would have been necessary to try to to build that kind of a center. So I think that was a missed opportunity. If it had succeeded, Afghanistan would never have been ruled by the Taliban. Bin Laden would never have found sanctuary there. And he might not have ever been able to develop the global ambitions that he did. I think the second turning point perhaps comes a little bit later, in 96, 97, as the Taliban rises to power in Afghanistan and starts to make these claims on national power in Afghanistan as essentially a totalitarian organization that is an expression of the ambitions of the Pakistan army to control Afghanistan. The United States might have challenged the Taliban uh, more directly and more robustly than it did. I don't mean invade Afghanistan, but simply recognize that the Taliban was unacceptable as a, an instrument of governance in, in Afghanistan and work with international partners to isolate, weaken, uh, and, and essentially push it out of, the, out of the throne. And instead, we passively accepted the Taliban and through uh, a variety of policies, including support for an oil pipeline project that was never likely to succeed, but which uh, dominated a policy debate and sort of uh, degraded uh, the American policy in the region, 
we accepted the Taliban and, and helped to give them the space that they uh, needed to consolidate their grip and to build the alliance with bin Laden and al-Qaeda that made both of them such formidable partners by the end of the 1990s. One final question. Uh, looking back on, on the story that you've just told us and, and uh, your, your sharing with us your, your own experience as a journalist, uh, how would you advise students to prepare for the future if, if they want to be able to uh, uh, address some of these problems uh, as, as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent? Well, I think um, you just, in the end, you have to do the work that matters. Uh, I know that sounds sort of abstract, and, and, but so many people think about journalism as where do I get a job and where, you know, where can I find a career and so forth. And I, I'm not suggesting that it's easy, but the people who I've seen over the years invent themselves and invent the space to do work, valuable work in, uh, usually start by just going out and doing it. And you, know, you can go abroad as a stringer and a correspondent if you do it in a careful and deliberate way uh, and, and get out into the world and just start doing this reporting. Find a way to, to do it. And it, journalism is different from law and medicine in the sense that you don't need a license. <laughs> All you really need is determination, talent, personality, and a little bit of support. And uh, while you can't go out cold without any journalistic experience and expect to make a success of yourself, uh, on the other hand, you don't have to learn, uh, you don't have to do seven years of residency in order to go out and start doing useful work. Steve, on that note, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming to Berkeley, lecturing, and uh, participating in our program. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Thanks very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. Mm -hmm.